everybody. Welcome to another edition of The Grit Show. And recently we have had some amazing guests on and it's been me and Tyrell riffraffing and talking and sharing some of our experiences. But um, some of the greatest conversations we've had and great feedback we've had is when my better half, Sunny Joe Mama. The queen. The queen comes on the <laughs> show and uh, we have a very special guest um, that has been through a lot in her life. Um, her story is very um, famous in my opinion. Um, it's it happened a while ago, um, but it was very, very public when it happened. Um, and I'm probably not the best to interview this. And so that's why I wanted to bring Sunny on board and have these. Did you, did you hear about it in Canada? Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay. And uh, we want to, ha- I want to have these two beautiful women have a conversation. So I want to introduce, um, reintroduce everybody to Sunny Joe. She's my wife. She's amazing. Um, but also introduce our guest today, which is Elizabeth Smart. And so I'm just kind of like going to, go back into the shadows and let you guys have an amazing conversation but welcome to the show elizabeth and i'm just so thrilled you said yes to do this because uh, we have your book and my my wife has read it and my daughters have read it and they were just so impressed uh by you your tenacity and the theme of this which is the grit show um you obviously displayed a lot of that so sunny elizabeth elizabeth sunny i have to ask you uh, did are you just Elizabeth Smart forever, or is it Liz, or is it Elizabeth? Is it just like, are you the two name lady now forever? Oh, probably. Um, I've never really gone by Liz. There's been a few people in my life who've called me Liz, but I'd say the vast majority of people who call me Liz, they don't know me very well. Um, I would make a couple exceptions, but the vast majority, if they call me Liz, it means they probably don't know me that well because for the most, all of my life, I've been Elizabeth. Okay, so just just explain why your story is so well-known with as much or as little detail as you want to give. Okay, um, well, um, I mean, I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah. I grew up in a nice neighborhood. I mean, I don't think anybody... Well, first of all, I don't think people ever expect anything bad or, I mean, really, like, tremendously bad to happen to them. I don't think we're programmed to live life that way, or at least I certainly wasn't. And um, I definitely was living in my own little bubble uh, where bad things didn't happen or whatever bad things did happen were very minor. And uh, right before I graduated from junior high, the night before I graduated, a man broke into my house and he kidnapped me at knife point and he took me up into the mountains where he then proceeded to rape me and chain me up and tell me that I was his wife. And um, the, the abuse, I was held hostage for nine months. During those nine months, I was taken to Southern California because um, I don't think we would have survived a winter in Northern Utah. And um, we ended up hitchhiking back. And the day we made it back into Utah, March 12th of 2003, was the day that I was rescued. And I was rescued because there were just everyday people going about their daily tasks who were paying attention that saw something strange. And they called the police. And that ultimately ultimately led to my rescue um and obviously that is like the very condensed version but um there was so much national state national and and i believe even international coverage over my story that um yeah it's probably one of the most well-known abduction cases in history i'd guess 
For sure. How long was that total time you were gone? Uh, nine months. Okay. And and so you were 14, right? In the book, I think I read. That yeah. You're yeah. So when you, what, what first happens? I mean, obviously you're abducted or, or whatever, but when you're first out there, share the experience of like the realization when it actually clicked for you that it was what it was. Oh, I mean, it was, I mean, I, it's even hard to really even say because like you think of all the different things you're prepared for in life or like the safety drills you go through. I mean, like, like at school we did, you know, if you catch on fire, like stop, drop and roll or if the school caught on fire. We've all used, right? We've all used yeah. stop, drop and roll, not ever. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like, I mean, I was taught, you know, look both ways before you cross the street. And I was taught, like, don't talk to strangers, which ironically, I mean, stranger abduction cases are less than, I want to say, about 3%. So um, the people you should be watching out for are probably the people you know or are related to, which that is a scary thought in and of itself. But I mean, I was, I was taught all of the safety education that I feel like most kids are taught and so the night that I was kidnapped from my bed I mean it just seemed impossible I mean it just like I remember when I was lying in bed I mean I shared my room with my younger sister she's about she's she's about five years younger than me um we we shared a bed and I remember the first time hearing this voice saying, I have a knife at your neck. Don't make a sound. Get up and come with me. And for me, it was such an impossible situation that I didn't even respond at first because my brain just kept telling me this is impossible. There's no way that someone's broken into my home, the place I consider most safe on earth, and gotten all the way upstairs to my bedroom because my bedroom wasn't on the ground floor. I mean, it was high. It was was on an upper level like you couldn't reach my my bedroom from the from the ground so he would have had to break into my house he would have had to get all the way upstairs all the way into my bedroom this just seemed like an impossibility um and so it wasn't until he repeated saying you know I have a knife at your neck don't make a sound get up and come with me for the second time that um that it really like I realized that there actually, it wasn't just a dream, but I realized it was real. And then from that moment, I, honestly, I would say really for the next couple of hours, like it just felt so surreal. Like for me, I feel like whenever I'm facing something hard or I don't want to do it or um, an uncomfortable situation, like I, like in my brain, I'm always like, okay, well, 24 hours from now, it'll be done. An hour or, you know, two days from now, it'll be done. A week from now, like this miserable misery will be over. And so almost for those first few hours, there was like a period of time where I was like, okay, like by morning, I'm going to be back at home. It's going to be okay. Like this, this isn't real. This can't be real. Um, but then, you know, as we got farther and farther up into the mountains behind my home, the the more real it became. And um, I mean, until ultimately, you know, I was being chained up and that, that point just kind of felt like, it just felt like I had hit rock bottom and that it was, I mean, that it was 
over in the in the sense that it was over that I was not going to be found that this was was real and to some degree like a complete loss of hope did did, did you think in those first 24 hours that he was going to take your life oh definitely I mean that was always a very real threat I mean it wasn't he didn't just like tell it to me once. I mean, I was told repeatedly that if I didn't do what he wanted, uh, that he would kill me. And if he didn't kill me, he'd go after my family. So not only did I feel responsible for staying alive myself, but I also felt responsible for protecting my family. Knowing he could access your home because he already did. Yes. Was the perpetrator somebody you knew or was it a complete stranger? Um, I mean... He wasn't someone I knew. Like, he had seen uh, my mom and, like, a couple of my siblings and myself out school clothes shopping um, in, like, September or maybe October of the prior, like, the prior to, to when I was kidnapped in June. And that's when he decided he was going to kidnap me or that I was the one he wanted to kidnap. I mean, like, we didn't know who he was or anything like that. And I didn't speak to him. I didn't talk to him or anything like that. He approached my mom and he had been out begging for money. And instead of begging for money, asking her for money, he asked her if she had any work for him. And she said no, but he could call my dad and maybe my dad could like find something for him to make, you know, a little bit of money um so he did end up calling my dad and my dad i think he told him he could do some weeding maybe around our house and um so he came to the house i'm not even sure if i was like there that day or at least when he first got there um i mean it wasn't like i sat and talked with him. i never i never spoke to him i never had any interaction with him and then you- after that there's no way you would have recognized him showing up at your house to abduct yes. him. No. no idea. And then I never, I mean, he never came back. We never saw him again until the night I was kidnapped. I think the most profound part of your story is not knowing when it was going to end. Because just like you stated earlier, you know, something you're going through that's really hard. I mean, a, a school semester, for instance, I went back to school as an adult and you know, that your schedule's all over the place. It's a mess and you're trying to balance all these things, but you're like, I can do this for four months. But in your case, it's like, there was, you didn't know. And I mean, you didn't, you didn't know. I loved your book. It was so beautiful and so well-written and so poised and direct. And from that, you know, it's like, you didn't know if you weren't going to live. You didn't know if you were going to live. It was like, there were so many things in the air about your circumstance that I think that's one of the things that's so powerful about your story is your age and your ability to see through that who knows when it's going to end. So that's like, I think one of the most powerful parts of that story is not knowing the end, which I think more people relate to with the struggles in their life than actually knowing the end. Well, well thank you. Um, I definitely, uh, like, yeah, there was definitely a point where I thought my best chance of survival was simply outliving my captors, which could be, you know, 30, 30 years or more. I mean, there were definitely a lot of days that I really questioned if I would survive. That's an, ins- sorry, this is an insane level of like 
resilience, just the fact that at such a young age, you had the presence of mind to saying, okay, worst case scenario here, I can outlive mm -hmm. this. Like that is phenomenal to me because I am considered an expert in like this mindset and toughness and resilience space. Like 14. Like to She's be 14, right? Like it took me a long time to be able to develop this. And at age 14, to just have that resilience, to, to just say, you know what? I can outlive. I not only, I'm not going to even, I'm just going to, I'm just going to tolerate I'm gonna, this. I'm going to outsmart you by outliving you. I'm going to outlive you. And that is just so, such a profound statement so, that it blows my mind. I think part of what makes that more profound, especially in today's day and age, is like you, it was well known that you came from this affluent family, but clearly not an entitled child that had everything done and handed to her. How did you, how did you, how did you grow up learning that type of resilience and that type of, you know, no quit? when there, it seems like a lot of people in this world today that are raised in privilege really struggle to create opportunities for their kids to, to develop resilience? Um, I think a lot of it came down to my mom, honestly. Um, she, I mean, even to this day, like I appreciate it and I hate it at the same time. Um, <clears throat> she has never let me feel sorry for myself. Um, she has always pushed me to, I mean, like if I had a bad day or if someone bullied me or um, something made me upset, she'd always then turn to me and be like, well, are you going to let this decide your happiness? Are you going to let this control you? Or are you going to like, are you going to decide your happiness? Um, like she'd always just like turn everything back around on me, even to this day, like if I'm having a bad day and I just want to go complain to my mom, she'll still be like, Yes, well, like, yeah, I'm I'm sorry you're having a bad day, but aren't you just so grateful for the life you live? And sometimes, like, sometimes it drives me absolutely nuts to the point I'm that calling I call someone else. <laughs> Why did I call you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hear this. But it's amazing. Uh, Little did you know she was preparing you for that nine month of hell, and it was because of that. Which is, you know, which is why you said you love it, but you hate it because ultimately it, it's what led to your survival. That, and, and I think honestly, I mean, I grew up with four brothers and I was pretty jealous of them because it seemed like they always got to go do like the fun stuff. Like they were part of like scouting and they got to like go river rafting with like their scout troop. And they got to like learn all these like like swamp a canoe and then unswamp it. And they got to learn all these things. And I remember just thinking, this is not fair. I don't want to sit here and learn how to sew a button on. Who cares about sewing a button on? You are like, speaking my language, man. I want to go out and swamp a canoe. <laughs> yeah, you are speaking my language. I've, I've heard this conversation in my house many times. I have four <laughs> daughters and a wife and they're like, are you kidding me? The young men got to go do what? And we have to do what? Yeah. <laughs> We're making that, crafts. That's what we're doing, right? Yeah. So I always felt like I had to prove that I was just as tough as they were and I could do everything that they could do. Well, I think you approved it. I think you won. Um, the part in your book about the thirst and hunger in California was incredibly fascinating. Um, do you want to share just a little bit about that? Um, you know why I 
right? I'm assuming you know why I think it's such a beautiful part of the story, but if you wouldn't mind sharing just a little bit about that part. Um, in California or, or in Utah? California. Okay. Um, I mean, there were, yes. So my captors, I mean, up until this point of my life, I had never seen adults like really yell nasty things at each other or like really, I don't know. Be that angry. I mean, like, yes, my parents had disagreements. Yes. When, um, you know, one of them was upset, like, I mean, they, they're, they're human beings. Like they were by no means perfect. Um, but I had never just like seen people just like full on, like raging at each other. And when I was kidnapped, that became a very common occurrence was to just see them like yelling at each other and just like, I don't know, spewing vitriol at each other. And um, this particular time, it was while we were in California and we'd already been like a couple of days without like a lot of food. I mean, we were down to like a crust of bread, basically, and like a few slices of onion and um, and like very little water. And um, so my my two captors were a husband and wife and um she uh Wanda Barzi she was she was one of my captors and Brian Mitchell was the other Wanda Barzi was so angry at Brian Mitchell and she would just like she would just go to town on him saying like you're being so lazy you're ignoring like you're ignoring like your duty to take care of us and and on and on and on and sometimes he would like yell back at her sometimes he'd just ignore her like it would just sometimes like their fights would just like I was waiting for something to happen um and this one time in particular like it was really bad their fight was really really bad and it was kind of late in the day and typically if he had been at the camp all, all day if it was late in the day he wouldn't go out into the town because where we were at I mean it was it was difficult all of our hiding places uh were difficult to get to I mean on this particular one it was up on one of these mountainsides um, in Southern California um, in a little area called Lakeside outside of San Diego. And I mean, you had to like, when you had to like shimmy up in between rocks to climb up it and you had to like fight your way through brush. And it was just, it was really difficult to get there. And so he, he wouldn't go out. Like if it was too late in the day, he just, he wouldn't go out, which meant another day without eating, another day without water. There was no water source on this mountain. And yet it was on this particular day, it was probably like, I don't know, 4.30 in the day. And he starts like, like putting his little, I don't know, I want to call it a money bag, but it didn't really have money. It might have had some couple dollars air change, wasn't money in it. Um, and he started like wrapping it around him and he like put on like his little hat thing he wore and he got up and he just left. And <clears throat> I mean, their fight had been so intense that I, uh, like I didn't ask anything or I didn't say anything cause I didn't, cause they fought a lot over me and I didn't want to draw the attention to myself. So, um, I didn't say anything at first. 
and the day kept going and going and going and it started getting later and later and later and he's not coming back and then the next day came and he's still not coming back and I mean like I'm hungry like I have not eaten proper food already in a few days and I mean I had like like a heel like a crust like the heel of bread with like an onion on it the day before just like a slice of onion and um like there was no water and that the next day passes and the next day comes and at this point I just like it's like I've I mean I've been hungry most of my kidnapping I was hungry but there was like I might go a day without eating but then like there would usually be water or at that point he would usually go out and maybe that night we knew something like food would come back so I never ate regularly during my abduction um but this seemed like this felt different and so I think it was like about on the third day and I mean I just didn't even feel like I could stand up to like move around I was just lying on the ground at this point and all of a sudden it started raining so uh Wanda Barzi and I we ran outside and we spread a tarp between us to catch rainwater for something to drink because we didn't have anything to drink um so we were able to catch I mean honestly a few gallons of of rainwater so that was that was good it was like that that meant we'd survive a little longer um and just kind of like day after day went by and he's not showing up and she's not making any like suggestion that we go out at that point I don't even know if I could have I mean like I could barely stand up um I remember feeling just lightheaded when I would stand up and it was about eight that went by and um and then sudden and the in the evening one night singing and it's not like the heavenly choirs i mean it was like terrible off key singing and sure enough in walks brian mitchell into this camp like he's like just like this conquering hero and um he's been able to like find some old kfc like i don't know if it was actually dug out of the garbage or if he was just able to get the leftovers as they were going to throw it out in the garbage and, yeah he just walked back into our campsite like he was a hero and I remember he just like started talking and both Wanda Barzi and I at this point were like like please it's been a week you have been gone a week and you're coming back acting like you're just this hero and we're on the brink of starvation and so fortunately she was like shut up um give us what you've brought. And I remember looking at the food thinking there's no way that that is enough food for me to actually eat. I mean, like I haven't, I've gone days. I've gone like a week without eating. Like, like that's, that won't be enough. 
And I remember then just being astounded that like three or four bites in, like I felt full, I could hardly eat anymore. But it was, yeah, it was intense. Turned out he went down um, into the little town, the little city, Lakeside. He'd broken into, well, he had like stolen some beer from a convenience store, stole some woman's like prescription drugs, took them, then broke into a church and passed out in the church. And the next morning, um, I think they must have run a daycare or something there. The woman who came in to like open it up found him in there and she called the police and they booked him in jail. Um, and it took some time before eight, he could like care. Eight, eight for several days in jail, right? While you guys oh, were yeah. like, it was great. Like, made me think jail's not that bad of a place to go. Um, yeah. And then to be like over a holiday weekend so like the judge was like oh you know you get five days or I can't even remember what it was now three days whatever it was um and you know you need to do like community service or something and uh, so yeah he came back and like talked about his time in jail how he could like watch tv and have a bed and a pillow and could shower and was fed food and I was stuck up on a mountainside, starving with a crazy woman. So it, it, in that moment, how, maybe just because you were so weak, but um, with him gone, did you not think that was an opportunity to she was there. maybe get away? I know, but yeah. to overpower. Um, I mean, she was a pretty scary woman. Yeah. Like from day one, she really like exerted her dominance um, and wanted to make sure that I always knew what my place was, which was basically under her feet. <laughs> and so, I mean, by that point, it had already been like eight months of captivity. And just like I had been so, at the end, the circumstances had been so bad that my mind was in it for the long game and it was focused on surviving just just surviving I mean escaping would be incredible but like my base goal was simply to survive and she always felt like a big enough threat a real enough threat that like the thought of escaping at that point in time just like it didn't even seem like a possibility and then when it might have been a possibility like a few days in I don't think I physically was strong enough to leave well, and then you guys get back on a bus or something. You end up back in Utah. So just share quickly how you were found. So, so we, immediate closure on this podcast. <laughs> um, we ended up hitchhiking back to Utah. And um, like, it was actually my idea to return. I was able to convince them to return. It was my idea to hitchhike. Because I thought, surely, like, if we're in people's cars, like, and it's like that of a setting someone's gonna notice something's not right here um I didn't get rescued through hitchhiking but I definitely think there were people who had a lot of suspicions and I actually during the trial later found out that some actually did then go to the police um but they just didn't know who I was um but so we were we hitchhiked back to Utah it was early morning March 12th we were walking up State Street in Salt Lake City, and my captors were in a rush to get me back up into the mountains because 
I mean, they were, they were concerned someone would recognize me. They were concerned that, you know, something might happen. And they were just like, once we get you back up into the mountains, you're never coming out again. But honestly, at that point, like it was okay. I was okay with that. Cause I was like, physically, I'm this much closer to my family. I'm this much closer to my home. I mean, California's, you know, hundreds of miles away. Like at least I'll be back in Utah. And if they take me back to where like the original hiding site is, I mean, that's only a few miles from like my home. So at least I'm that much closer to my family. Um, and yeah, we were walking up state street when all of a sudden a police car pulled up and another and another, and, um, it just, I don't, honestly, I don't even know how many police officers were there. They were all jumping out of their cars. They came running over. They started asking all sorts of questions. I had a captor standing like shoulder to shoulder on either side of me. So it wasn't just like, I was there by myself. <laughs> Um, and I'd been told like a whole backstory to give if I was ever questioned. And um, so initially, as my captors were being questioned, um, it it didn't feel different than other times because we had been approached in the past by police before. Um, but it didn't feel different immediately. And then one of the officers, um, they, I think, they, they paid attention to their intuition. They noticed something just wasn't right. And so he's like, we need to question her by herself. We need to separate her away from you. And they separated me. And at that point, that was when I was finally able, like, oh, okay, maybe this is different. Like, they, they asked, maybe right? they ask you if you were Elizabeth Smart. Um, yes. Yeah. yeah, they asked you. You didn't tell them, right? They said, are you Elizabeth Smart? And that's when you- Well, I mean, the, the police officer- um, he like just started saying, you know, there's a girl, she's been missing for a very long time. Her family has never given up hope. They've never stopped looking for her. They want her to come home more than anything else in this world. Aren't you ready to come home? And yeah, that was when I was able to, yeah, admit who I was. So when you were approached uh, previous times with law enforcement, what was it that didn't make you feel safe to be like, I'm Elizabeth Smart? And they had guns on them and they like, how did, how did they get you to the point where you were so scared that even in the presence of law enforcement, you were still like, I'm sticking to the story. Um, so common question you've been asked over this time. Common question I've been asked. And there's like a few things I, I want to point out. Like, first of all, like, I was a 14, 15 year old girl. Like even, even now as a woman, when I go out, like, like I will never be as physically strong as a man. Like I never will. And like, like even right now, um, I've been, I feel like I've been running my brains out trying to um, prepare for the St. George Marathon. Uh, yes, I am exhausted. I'm so sick of running. I don't know how you've done what you've been able to do. <laughs> but like, even now, like, I know if I ran against my husband, like, he would still beat me. I mean, maybe I could go longer than him because he hasn't been training, but he would still out sprint me. Like, he's just stronger than I am. And like, for me, when I was kidnapped, that was always very apparent. I mean, I was 
like a girl at the beginning of puberty. Like I wasn't a grown woman. I wasn't like a big, strong person. Like through my whole captivity, I always knew like I would not beat him. He was a full grown man. Like he's raging, right? Now he's raging coming after you. That's weird. like any any time I did try escaping in the past, I mean, like it always it always was bad. Like he'd get me, he would very brutally rape me, um, he would threaten me, he would say things like, like, you know, if you ever leave again, like I'm gonna kill you, or if you try, because I never succeeded um like I'm gonna kill you I'm gonna kill your family and like these didn't feel idle threats um they felt they felt real they felt very real um and you knew it was crazy so you're like he would do anything and it was months of this behavior and then like I don't know I guess I don't know how everybody else feels around police but if you're driving along the road and maybe you're going a little bit fast if you see a police car you just automatically slow down and I didn't have a personal relationship with anyone in law enforcement as you know as a kid like I didn't know any and I didn't know any police officers and so there was also that whole layer of why would they believe me um a teenager which I feel like people are like oh she's probably lying she's a teenager um over these two adults who are like oh you know we're servants of God we are yeah collaborating their story right exactly exactly yeah okay so now that you're an adult when you look back on your story how do you see it differently because I feel like as a mother, I look back at the times I was hurting or struggling as a teenager or as a child, and there's like this immense deep love that it, it's like, I wish as my adult self, I could have been there for that younger self, you know, like that's maybe not the best relatable example, but as an adult, when you look back on your experience, what are some things that you see differently or like, what are some thoughts that you've had? Um, I mean, looking back now, I like, well, when I was like, when I was first rescued, I was really embarrassed and I felt a lot of shame and I didn't want people to know that I'd been raped or sexually abused. Um, and I just, like, I just, I wanted it to disappear and I wanted it to hide. And now as an adult, looking back, like, like, I wish I could like go like hug my younger self and be like, you have nothing. I mean, I would have never told anyone back then that I was ashamed of what happened or that I I wouldn't have told anyone anything. Um, but like, I wish I could go back and tell myself like, you have nothing to be ashamed of. Like you did not lose your value. You are every bit as worthy of happiness, of love as, as everyone else. And at the end of your book, the best ending of a book I've ever read in my life. You know, I mean, even earlier talking about your mom and saying when, but how, you know, and how she taught you that, like, you, you're not a victim, you're not blah, blah, blah. Talk a little bit about the ending of your book and how you were able to overcome that and say, I'm not going to let this define me and this isn't who I am. We should be like, don't tell, don't tell the story. You have to go buy the book right now. (laughs) (laughs) 
for five dollars, we'll tell you how it ends. Um, no, I mean it comes back to my mom once once again. Um, I mean, I was in in her room talking with her as as usual, and she just stopped me and she said, you know, Elizabeth, what these people have done to you is terrible, and there aren't words strong to describe like how wicked and evil they are they've stolen nine months of your life from you that you'll never get back i mean sure this might go through the justice system sure they might go to prison but you may never feel like justice was really served i mean they stole part of your life from you they stole your childhood from you like your childhood ended i mean they stole a lot innocence of it all yeah yeah that you will never get back but the best punishment you could ever give them is is to be happy and um, I've had 20 years now to think of that advice. And um, like, I don't necessarily think she meant like, oh, just pretend it never happened or just make your mind up to be happy and like all the bad things will go away. Wouldn't that be great if that's how things really worked out? I think what she meant was never give up on believing in happiness, like never give up on, on, on your pursuit of happiness. Um, because by feeling sorry for yourself or feeling sorry for myself, that only allows them to steal more of my life from me and they don't deserve that. And so maybe I'm that stubborn. Maybe my mom's influence has been that massive. Definitely that. Um, just maybe a combination of, of everything. Um, but I definitely don't want my captors to steal any more of my life from me. That's beautiful. Um, oh, you should, the end of the book. And I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, telling all you. All right, I'll read the book. It is the most beautiful ending I've ever read in my life. And it, I think it was the ending that made me tell all of my kids, like, you've got to read this book. Like, it is so beautiful. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I'm definitely going to read it. And we encourage all of our listeners to read it. We'll put a, a link to it in a, in, the, in the show notes. Uh, but there's a lot of a lot of people out there in today's world that are struggling with their own version of your story. Uh, probably not nearly as extreme, but their own version of it. And what was it outside of that advice your mother gave you? Like, was there a specific therapy or or process you went through that, or even personal could, yeah, personal things you found worked for you? Yeah, that you could share that would help just one or two individuals that are going through their own version of this. Um, so I did not go through um, like traditional formal therapy. I really didn't understand what it was, um, which I think, I think when I told my parents, I didn't want to talk to anyone about anything. I think that really uh, worried them, um, but they respected my, my choice, which I feel like that in and of itself is, is huge. I mean, as an adult now, like I, I support therapy. I think it's wonderful. I think you need to understand what it is. It's not just like a miracle drug. It's not just a miracle thing. You go to one session and your life's better. It's, it's a lot of work. Um, so I think therapy is great, but I did not go through, uh, therapy. Um, after my rescue, uh, I had a lot of doubts that anyone could really ever understand what I had been through. I didn't want to talk about it. I just, I wanted to, I experienced a lot of, of FOMO, a lot while I was kidnapped. And so that just made me be like, I want to live my life. Like, I don't want to miss out on anything. And I feel like going and talking about is going to make me miss out on more life. 
Um, but it would drag it out for you, essentially, right? It would it would prolong the suffering. Yeah. Um, but I feel like I found therapy in in different ways. I feel like I found it through through music. Um, I grew up playing the harp. I mean, here's here's. I was going to tell James she plays the harp. I know I can see. It. Um, and I felt like music was very healing. Um, I felt like just being outside, just being in nature, like being, I, my grandpa used to take me horseback riding a lot. I felt like that was very healing. Um, I was with someone safe, someone I trusted doing something I loved and honestly we'd go on rides and it wasn't like we do like a ton of talking. We That's just a real thing. Like equine therapy is a real thing where it's just a connection with the horse, right? It's you reading the horse and the horse reading you. Like that's a legit form of therapy. You just didn't know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I felt like that was, that was very helpful. And I feel like just like being back in a safe supportive loving environment was was huge for me and as I have gone on in my life and I've met with other survivors sorry there's my barky dog in the background um as I have met with other survivors I think one of the things that I am most grateful for um that I feel like other survivors don't always get because they know who their perpetrators are um is that for the vast, vast majority, I have never been doubted. Like nobody's ever said, I mean, yes, there have been a few people who've been like, oh, you ran away or you did this or you did that. That is the exception. That is not the norm. But like the people, the important people in my life never doubted my story. But, but when I think of these other survivors who were abused by family members or someone that they knew, and then they finally build up the courage to talk about what happened to them to somebody else and that person knows the perpetrator uh, and maybe is friends with them or has a close connection with them I mean there's been too many that I've heard them say well when I told people when I told my family they didn't believe me when I when I you know shared it with someone else like they know who this person is and, and they didn't believe me and so I just didn't feel like I could share it with anyone else because I didn't feel like I'd be believed and I think having made a huge difference for me. So what do you think or what do you say to people who love to be in the victim role, who love to catastrophize in their own life, who love to make it out that their life is so hard and this and that and whatever. And I'm talking about people who seek it out um, that have you know, for some reason they thrive, everything serves us for a reason, but they thrive in this victim role. What advice would you offer someone like that, having been through something that actually is genuinely traumatic compared to just seeking out this role of victim? Well, I guess they're where they want to be then if they're just seeking out that role continually. I mean, like if, if that's what they want, then I guess they have want and there's nothing said. So like, but, you, like, don't care. Like, that's what you want. I, I was just curious if, cause you know, some people are kind of hostile about it. I have a friend that does therapy and she stopped doing regular therapy because she dealt with so much traumatic stuff that it was really hard for her to do therapy for someone who was mad at their husband for, you know, 
not giving them enough spending money or something. And so she moved into solely victims of crimes, of uh, violent crimes. And so I was curious if you had the same type of thing with that, but it seems like you don't. It seems like you're just like, yeah, go do your thing, yo. I mean, like, I think we all, like our windows of like, how do I say it? Someone explained trauma to me once as there is like this window of what we can handle and anything that happens like outside of this window is considered trauma. Um, so if like our life was like this window and it's following along the line and every time the line goes above or below this window, um, that's trauma and our windows, I mean, they can grow and they can shrink. And I guess just some people's trauma windows are a lot smaller than others. So part of me is just like, I, like what might be traumatic for me might not be traumatic for someone else or what they're going through might be really traumatic for them and not for me. Um, I think there's a lot of factors that like play into everything. And, and I'm not a therapist or a psychiatrist and I'm not like licensed to do anything except drive my car. Um, and play the harp. Well, I don't need a license for that. <laughs> That's a good but, answer. That's but good. Um, I just like, like, I guess, you know, maybe their windows of trauma are just a lot smaller. And like, I just try to, I guess, have compassion for everyone and try to keep an open mind to recognize not everyone's in the same place. Good answer. So has it made you paranoid as a mom? Um, yes. <laughs> yes. So what are your three kids? Your three right? kids. Mm -hmm. Boys or girls? Girl, boy, girl. Boy, girl. Yeah. Boy. Yeah. Boy, girl, boy. And they're still young. So like, what are some things you find yourself doing that you're like, I wouldn't have done that if I hadn't have had the experience I had? Um, probably just overall paranoia like you can't be outside unless I'm outside or like our nanny's outside with you or my husband's out with you or like I don't know I mean making sure you know when every door is locked and even if I'm lying in bed and I locked everything when I went to bed but I maybe am like questioning a particular door like getting up and going back and checking it again or Sunny's never been abducted and she does that so I can't even imagine the level of which you do based on the experiences you had so what's maybe a, 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 a piece of advice that you would give to parents with kids that maybe we're taking lightly or flippantly and we need to reassess love your child unconditionally make sure they know that you love them unconditionally and then keep um, consistent open communication with them and like implement like your your bubble of safety or your cone of safety or whatever it is where you tell them like if anything ever happens to you like you can like invoke this bubble of safety where I am not going to respond emotionally for 24 hours. You can tell me anything. I'm not going to be mad at you. Um, we're going to talk this through. Like, like I'm not going to overreact. And um, like, this is a safe place. And then after the 24 hours, maybe there are natural consequences or maybe there are consequences that need to be put in place um, and then reconsider those, but make sure that they are uh, not scared 
like that their fear doesn't stop them from telling you what's going on in their life. I think that's unbelievable advice. And uh, Sonny's done that brilliantly. And for anybody that's like new to parenting, adopt and implement this at such an early age, like before they can even talk, start developing that pattern of over communicating, getting them to feel comfortable with you. I love that our kids will come to, to Sunny now and literally share anything. And I think it makes me feel much safer as a father, knowing that that open line of communication is, and Sunny really knows everything. And here's, here's a dad tip for everybody out there. If you want to know what's going on in your kids' lives, drive them and their friends around mm -hmm. uh, because they quickly forget that you're driving them and they spill the tea, as the kids would say, in the backseat of the car. And so a dad tip out there for all you dads that are worried about your daughters, get in a car, uh, drive them around as much as you can, because you will learn so much about your children um, because they they get loose lipped in the back I, of the car. I, I sent an email to a teacher today because of the things I heard in the car mm. going on. I was like, your teacher said what? Your teacher did what? All just them talking, right? Overhearing. Yeah, they, they will so. volunteer the, their information. And so the more you can make them feel comfortable, I think that was just such great advice um, for, for parents with kids. Start as early as you can with, with developing that trust. What about intuition? Trust it. 100%. Um, I feel like we are raised to be polite, or at least I was raised to be polite. I was raised to be respectful. Um, like, even now, it's hard for me to say no like, I don't like offending people. I don't like hurting people's feelings. Like, it's it's hard. It's hard for me to say no. Um, and so I think we need to focus and prioritize our safety, even if it means at the expense of other people's feelings. If you don't feel safe in a situation, get out of it. Leave. Say something. Set your boundary. Practice setting your boundaries. Practice saying no. Um, don't just go along with things because other people are, I mean, like really like search your feelings and see how you, like how you truly feel. I mean, do you really feel safe with this person? Do you really trust this person? Or are you just going to be like, oh, well, we're in a public place. It'll be fine. I'm just going to ignore it. I mean, no, we have video recordings of, you know, attacks happening at gas stations and there are other people standing, like pumping their gas and, you know, like people are being drug off screaming for help. Like, these things happen. So trust your intuition. Um, practice saying no. Practice screaming. Um, I, I'm about out of time, but like I want to just give this example really quick. So I have um, this program in my nonprofit called Smart Defense, and um, I have like the most amazing director. She is like five time world champion for her weight group in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Um, but it's like a trauma-informed self-defense program. And she goes around, she does all of these um, <clears throat> trainings um, and classes. And I happened to be at one last week. And um, it was so interesting watching because at the very beginning, one of the first things we, we have them actually do is just scream. And I feel like there was maybe one woman who screamed at 85% of her volume capacity and everyone else was like, I think maybe 40%, maybe 50%. I mean, like practice, I know it sounds crazy, but like just practice screaming, no, just do it every time before you leave the house, like wake the whole house up. I don't know. 
Let's just say, I'll tell you, it impacted, uh, of course, your unfortunate circumstances blessed my life, but I taught my kids at a young age because of your story. I'm not much older than you are. Um, I used to say to them, what if somebody says they're going to kill you? What do you do anyway? And they're like, you fight, you kick, you scream. And I, I would say next thing, what do you say if they tell you they'll kill your whole family? Because I know <clears throat> that was the thing that was more tender to you than your own safety or whatever, but it was because your story was so prominent that I knew heading into motherhood that I was like, I have to drive into this to let them know that even if they are in a circumstance or whatever, they fight back. And I always tell them, you fight till you die. You know, it doesn't matter if you die. Jesus is waiting for you. You fight till you die. And so, you know, your story taught me things as a mother and helped me prepare, especially having four daughters that blessed my life and has blessed my family's my relationship with my family so although it was unfortunate for you i thank you for your strength and for your beautiful book um in closing if you want to just share your nonprofit stuff and tell us you know just to wrap yeah that up. so i have i started the elizabeth smart foundation um about geez i guess maybe it's been 13 years ago now. Um, and then about two years ago, we merged with the Malou Foundation. And like my, like Elizabeth Smart Foundation's goal has always been to, um, I mean, stopping sexual exploitation in, in all its forms and, and give hope. And it's continued to be that since our merger with the Malou Foundation. Um, unfortunately, like across the nation, the average about is about one in five women experience some form of sexual violence in Utah. It's about one in three. And that is just like cases reported. I like bet it's probably more like one in two if we take into account the cases that are not reported. And th those are really terrible, horrific numbers. So uh, we have like uh, no number of programs and initiatives all focused on on ending this, on prevention, education, and then providing hope and healing to those victims who have survived. So awesome. So where is it that people can go to best connect with you, best to, place to donate, where I can enroll my kids into this fighting thing that you just talked about? <laughs> yes, go to elizabethsmartfoundation.org or we're on Instagram or Facebook. We have, um, it's just, Go look at Elizabeth Smart Foundation or Maloof Foundation, or we have our own page for our Smart Defense um, on Instagram as well, which is ESF Smart Defense. And uh, yeah, definitely go check it out. Enroll your daughters. Take it with your daughters. Uh, Mio is like, that is our Smart Defense instructor, head, head director. She is amazing like i couldn't speak enough i couldn't sing her praises enough cool well we're gonna make it a priority I, I just i know how hard it is sometimes to talk about these things i want to just thank you so much for having the courage to come on and continue to talk about it because if you're like us you want to have as much impact on your family and those that uh, we love and around us in the community that we don't even know and so thank you for, thank for you coming so on much. um everybody buy her book uh support her in every capacity donate to telling the, you guys donate to the cause i i'm excited to read the best ending I, we've written two books i've written two books and she's like that's the best ending and i'm like ever. i'm sitting right here beside you and this is the best ending you've ever read <laughs> so again th th thank you elizabeth and um, we appreciate you and we hope everybody donates so thank you 
Thank you. Thank you.